This is The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. We're on the web at theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter at Socianex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Ashley Mears from Boston University. Ashley is the author of Pricing Beauty, The Making of a Fashion Model from the University of California Press, and she currently serves as chair of the ASA section on consumers and consumption. You won't want to miss this. How's it going, guys? It's going. All right, though, I'm wondering what episodes can people miss? Because, you know, you always <laughs> describe, and, and we're always uh, really excited, or whatever your word is, to have people, and uh, it's always, you don't want to miss it. And I've always thinking, like, what, what are you going to do when we get to a dispensable episode? Where we have <laughs> yeah. There will never be there's one. Not, there's nothing really worth talking about with, you know. <laughs> I wanted to talk about uh, the social sciences being uh, bullied by the political mob, and it seems to be coming from all sides. I'm sure uh, many of you have heard about the whole thing with uh, George uh, Sicariello Mar. I hope I pronounced his name right, from Drexel. Have you heard about this guy? Remind us. Okay, so I I mean, I don't know him personally, and I haven't read his work. He seems to be a a, a serious Latin Americanist, and he's on Twitter. And personality-wise, he seems like one of these provocative types. And uh, he's basically, I think he's trolling conservatives. He think, he tweets about things like uh, uh, trying not to vomit or yell about Mosul when uh, someone yeah. gave a soldier a first class seat on a flight. And uh, he, he tweeted things like, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. Oh. And I should say that he, well, I, I should say he's white also. Uh-huh. Okay, just to be clear on that. And he says it's satire and it's, you know, it's trolling, I think. It's not my cup of tea. I don't think it. I, th- I agree. Trolling sounds like a good word for it. Yeah. I mean, I don't really feel like this type of stuff is like down the path towards the good society, but whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Breitbart and the whole David Horowitz style type, you know, liberal professors are poisoning kids' minds. That, that whole scene jumped all over him. <laughs> and then recently from the other side, uh, have you heard about this third world quarterly retraction? Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah. Okay, I'll just, in case somebody hasn't heard about it, this. so I don't know if this is satire as well. I mean, if it isn't, then I don't know really what to say about it. It's, it's basically a uh, uh, an article that was published, I guess, about the plus sides of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds a lot like people who argue, you know, that uh, we're ignoring the upside of slavery to black people or maybe oh, like, yeah, Holo- like Michelle, I read it and I was like, oh, that's like when Michelle Bachman said, well, you know, at least in slavery, the black family was intact. Oh, God. Yeah. Until you sell, until you sell them away from each other, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Footnote. <laughs> but I mean, I didn't read the paper. It's not on my reading list. But anyhow, the Third World Quarterly retracted the article, citing threats of violence to the journal editor as the reason for retraction. So it wasn't huh. the content itself, but rather it was directly cited the, the presence of threats. And this uh, this closely follows the model of the Hypatia thing about six months ago. Tell what what's that? So there was a a feminist journal, I believe that that's it was a feminist journal, um, and somebody wrote a philosophy piece basically saying that there's no way in principle to distinguish between transgender and transracialism, and uh, people were not happy about that. I think there were like board resignations or things like that to push 
the journal to retract the article. And what's funny about that is one of my colleagues has made a very similar argument and it hasn't really gotten appreciable pushback, certainly not from within the discipline. It's just treated as like, this is a reasonable topic of inquiry. Although he, he has more of a, less of a normative take and more of just like a, isn't it interesting that people, uh, you know, treat uh, gender as plastic, uh, but race as essential, even though both are socially constructed. Did, did the article end up retracting in that case? I believe so. I know it was really controversial and, you know, the, the journal kind of went back and forth and I don't remember all the ins and outs, but I do know that there was criticism, that the, the people criticized the um, article and the journal for publishing it for not kind of towing the party line. And then they put it, then they retracted or did something along those lines. And then there was pushback to the pushback and backlash to the backlash to the backlash turtles all the way down. Yeah. Well, I kind of feel like with that, with that argument, you, you know, regardless of what side you're on, I actually think having it published and then having people chime in to say why they believe it's wrong, right? Right. That's what comments and replies or writing your own article that cites it critically is for. There's a big difference between if I think, you know, Hinks in 2017 is the, you know, dumbest, most offensive argument I've ever seen, you know, I'm going to ask the editor to do a comment and reply to your article, or maybe I'll just write my own article that cites you and says why you're wrong. But I'm not going to say that you should, um, that your article should be retracted, unless I think it's simply wrong on the empirics. Not that I disagree with it, but like, if I think like, but even then, like in sociology, we traditionally do comment and replies, even if we think somebody did a math error that made the article. Yes. Uh, you know, the only reason that we would ask for a retraction is if something is outright fraudulent. Right. Which is different from being normatively unethical. Yeah. What what strikes me here is like, I thought a retraction had was for very specific circumstances. And one of them wasn't negative outside reaction mm-hmm. to a paper. So it's kind of striking that this is happening. On the other hand, I guess the, neither of these people strike me as strike me personally as very sympathetic in the way they, you know, either what they're advocating or the way they go about things. And I don't know, like, what's your feeling on this? Is this a, a failure on the part of the institutions, like uh, on the part of Drexel or Third World Quarterly? Or are, should we be talking about, you know, codes of professional conduct and ask whether these two guys are transgressing any type of... My feeling is I don't want to know what my opinion is of these things substantively, both because they're outside my area, so it's kind of wasting my time, but also because once you start getting into the specifics, you're no longer talking about principle. And to me, there's a great principle. Yeah, no. For, so so for me, I was wondering, because I did read that article, um, The Case for Colonialism, and my question was, isn't there peer review here? Uh, there were so many things in this article that I thought to myself, you know, like I, I, I could have cited, I could could have cited reams of evidence, right? That totally went against this, mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, you know what I mean? You want to contextualize this a little bit?" I don't know how it made it through peer review unless the intention was to have it in there to be provocative. Oh, because there's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's there's this irony, right? And that. We always think like, how can I get things through peer review? It takes a year, year and a half to get through review with all the R&Rs and everything. But just look at how much crap is published, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, saying that um, crap gets published is like saying the sun rises in the east. There's just so much stuff <laughs> published and most of it sucks. So that's that's not surprising to me. Yeah, you know, one of one of the things that he that he says here is that, you know, one of the really good things about colonialism is that I'm trying to find the quote, is that 
you know, it ended slavery. And I, I was thinking to myself, which colony is he, is he talking about and at which periods of time? Because in order for many colonies to thrive, there needed to be a slave trade. Uh, I haven't read the article, but I'm going to guess that this is the distinction between like 16th, 17th century colonialism and 19th and 20th century colonialism. Because I, I know that there were places where colonial empires ended the local slave trade in the early in the late 19th and early 20th century, even though they um, expanded and changed the nature and made more international the slave trade in that you know early modern era. Yeah, well, you can't pick and choose, and he doesn't distinguish between the two eras here. And you know, he like and here he 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 talks about the Congo, mm-hmm. and you know, and how the Congo was good under Portuguese colonialism Wait, Portuguese or Belgian I mean sorry sorry Belgian yeah. and I'm thinking to myself um did he did he not read King Leopold's ghost well all I know is from Tintin comics and so on that <laughs> basis, you know. it, it struck me I saw this thing on Twitter where it was like a neo-nazi comes out as being Jewish and gay uh-huh. and I'm like uh thanks I guess yeah. I don't know <laughs> you know I I think that I think this is up for for argument Right. Um, If only because I think there are lots of people out there who think that bringing back colonialism is good, who think that, you know, ending colonialism was bad for a lot of countries. And it would be great to, you know, to have a really well thought out and researched response to this. You really think that's on the table? You you really think that, like, you know, Belgium has 20,000 troops ready to go back into Congo at a moment's notice? No, he's he's trying to argue that that Belgium should actually consider going back in. Well, I I don't doubt that there's somebody saying that, but I'm saying, is it is it realistically on the table? Oh, he's saying that I don't think that it's realistically on the table. What he's saying is that many many of these former colonies would actually welcome, or at least should welcome, their former colonizers or new colonizers coming in um, so that they could fix their infrastructure um, problems. Mm-hmm. Isn't that like advocating for like the World Bank coming in, though? I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, here, well, but... ex- that's what I was saying. I was like, isn't that what the World Bank already does to some extent? But... <laughs> I don't know. What about this George? What about this this guy George Sicariello? I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, though. With the with the with the trolling on Twitter and getting suspended for it by Drexel. What's your reaction to that? You know what? That's like really. It's really hard because part of me thinks if you're trolling and you're doing it on your own time and you're not targeting other people in your field, is it our business to police you for doing that, right? But at the same time, you know, I guess if you're out there doing that and people can trace you back to the institution, does that look bad on your institution? But, but like there's the flip side of that uh, happened this week as well. There's a, a really uh, popular sort of pop financial analyst called Mark Faber, who's mm-hmm. always on uh, always on CNBC. He basically was talking about uh, on his, uh, I think it was on Twitter or something like that, about how I guess white people deserve credit for I, I, it was just something patently racist like uh, America should be glad it's predominantly white or something like that isn't that the flip side like if he's on his own time talking about that should he be kicked off the air or? Well, I, yeah so I, my feeling about this is that you know it, the, this um, the the Drexel guy sounds like an asshole and I, I wouldn't want to but I also think he ha- he has his academic freedom. 
that if he is just kind of doing this on his own time, especially if he doesn't list the university in the bio or otherwise trying to fill it, you know, actively identify it with the university. Um, although even if he did, I'd kind of think like, you know, for identification purposes only. So what, right? I mean, I identify myself as being at UCLA at the beginning of this podcast. And I, I feel like if the chancellor of UCLA doesn't like something I say in the course of the podcast, that's his problem. I have tenure, I have academic freedom. So it, it, this this guy seems to have very low value speech, right? He's not saying anything particularly valuable, but I still think just as a point of principle, you have to grant him academic freedom, um, you know, in order in part to protect high value speech without it turning down to what do you think on the merits? Yeah, you know, when I remember my freshman year in undergrad, and I remember one of our RAs, we got into a heated conversation about colonialism and about empire and about race. And he be, and I will never forget this. He said, well, you know what? If it wasn't for people like me, right, you know, you know, who knows where you'd be? I think you should thank me because you don't live in a mud hut and you still have your clitoris. Right. So Ooh. thank me for that. Yeah, that's, and, that's pretty fucking offensive. I mean, it, well, yeah, it is. But I mean, how different is that from, you know, from from this financial analyst and what he's saying? Much different in my eyes. Like uh, I, in my eyes, students are, are you know, when you have a, a particular student, I feel like we're stewards of their well-being and that type of thing in a classroom setting. Yeah, that, is, that's is a good point. Well, it classroom. Yeah. It wasn't a classroom setting. We, he was a, he was an, I mean, when I say RA, it's a residential assistant. Oh, you me. know, he lives in the dorm with you and he's an upperclassman. And as fellow students, we're having a, a conversation. Uh, I, I don't know. That, for me, that's different. When, I mean, for me, I see students as young. Uh, we're responsible for them in my eyes. And, and, and that, to me, is sort of core mission. There's also a difference between say, saying something in general and saying something to another person. You know, I, I think the second person changes it. You think? I mean, why? Well, in one, in one case, it's a statement of how you think in principle. In the other person case, it's an attack. And if someone overhears you... It kind of my feeling is that if somebody overhears me saying something that they disagree with, uh, but it's not said to them, then that's kind of their problem. Whereas if I say something to someone with the reasonable expectation that they'd be offended by it, then that's kind of on me. Huh, that's interesting. I, I, ju- I just feel like professors have a special responsibility towards their students that, you know, it's not like talking in the public sphere. Uh, there's power dynamics. I think we have a responsibility and uh, not just professors, but anybody in the, you know, any, anybody who's sort of at a university who someone has some type of authority over. I feel it's just very different from speaking on Twitter, mm-hmm. for example. You have to actively seek out his views. Whereas, I mean, what, and you can always unfollow him. What's a, what's a student going to do? Like move out of residence? We've just been joined by our guest, Ashley Mears, an associate professor of sociology from Boston. Hi, Ashley. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hi, Ashley. So we were, we were just in the middle of banter. And uh, who, who is up next? <laughs> Unless you've got something you want to talk about, Ashley, before we... No, we can, we can move, move ahead. I like your banter style, though. So I've had this old banter that I've been thinking about in the back of my head. I think I told you all that, you know, in my, res- my methods of social science research, we were talking about ethics, you know, a student raised her hand. No one's ever asked me this question before. And she asked me, you know, would you 
like, would you not cite someone whose work you believe, you know, sort of was unethical, you know, whose methods you believe were unethical? And my response to her was, well, um, you know, there are works that we know were problematic, but were written mm-hmm. before IRBs, right? And we usually tend to bracket them as being problematic, but, you know, they moved us forward in this way. Um, but I, I was wondering whether or not we ever actually think about whether current works are ethical since we just assume that IRB takes care of that. I just assume IRB takes care of that. You know, I don't know. It's not even ethical. Like, in a sense, the discipline celebrates Stanley Milgram, right? Celebrates yeah. the Stanford Prison Experiment. Well, the Stanford Prison Experiment was bad just scientifically. Like, ethics aside, <laughs> there wasn't really much of value learned from it, which is in contrast to the uh, Milgram thing. Um, where, you know, Milgram actually is very informative for Stanford prison. It was just so poorly designed. It was more like a, you know, experimental theater than it was, um, any type of well-designed experiment. Yeah. So my stance, well, yeah, trade, I think that T-Room trade, trade, like right. there were yeah, so serious ethical violations, but it was still before IRB, but like the kinds of things that we learned from it were, were really important. And, and I think they still resonate with undergrads. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these look even even the Stanford Prison experiments. Like it's, I mean, it's one of the best known experiments in the social science, and is taught to virtually every undergraduate who passes through a social science program. So it's like uh, I don't know how how. Oh, I I agree. It's ironical. I I just think that it's not very good, and it's not very good for reasons entirely aside from it being unethical. It also was so. so here's a here's a hypothetical to you all, right? Let's say there's a there's a study that's been conducted recently and should have gone through IRB, and you know, and given what's given what's written in this work, whether it's an article or a book, you actually feel you your spidey senses are tingling, and you feel mm-hmm. as though there were sort of ethical breaches, right? Would would you would you refrain from citing it, even if reviewer number two tells you you need to cite it? Yeah, I would say. I, I'd have no problem citing it. I, I mean, as long as I believe it, even if I think it was gathered unethically, I'd have no problem citing it. I, I, and, and also, we keep talking about IRB as if some, IRB is actually engaged substantively in ethics. IRB is primarily <laughs> <laughs> and making sure that you've done a lot of paperwork. When I see something was approved by IRB, I'm thinking, okay, this person did a lot of paperwork and made the respondents read a bunch of forms that don't make any sense. Um, so. Well, that's exactly why, why I raise it, mm-hmm. right? It's because, I, because I'm wondering whether or, not, whether or not we ever think about it, even given what we know about IRB. <laughs> uh, sorry, Georgetown IRB, I didn't know. Uh, well, they'll all get what's coming to them when common rule reform gets implemented. <laughs> You know, but what's the difference between that? Who was the person who was the basis of the Stockholm Syndrome, though? You know, it's like an unethical act that elicits a response that's informative about the social world. Like, to, to my mind, I, I would probably cite that stuff just like I would. Who was that? Well, it was some, I thought it was some, uh, one of those far left uh, 1960s, you know, Bader-Meinhof game type <laughs> things, except in Stockholm. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, but the, the point is, is that a person got kidnapped. Oh, and then here mm-hmm. in this country, you had uh, Patty Hearst. 
which was basically the yeah. same story and more familiar to us as Americans. You know, and I, I, I would talk about that because it's illustrative. I guess maybe it's a flaw in my, you know, my moral code, the moral code that I bring to Well, yeah, uh, so like, if we can't talk about Milgram, does mm-hmm. that mean we can't talk about Kitty Genovese? Because we think a woman shouldn't mm-hmm. be raped and assaulted in the street and, and killed. You know? No, but but here's the thing. We do cite those things, but I think... Almost every time I see these works cited, there's always the, although it did, you know, although it was problematic in this way, right? Um, And that's because we all know it, right? What about for things where we don't know it, right? For sure. But we're just like, I don't know. I think that this is questionable. I think the ethics of this method or this, Mm. you know, data collection, I think it's unethical. This is really interesting to me that I've actually never thought about this question before. Like the ethics of the research very rarely influence whether or not I think that the findings are worth repeating or talking about. But in both of those cases, the Stanley Milgram experiment and the Kitty Genovese um, case, like those, those are things that are like not really... Uh, not really good findings anymore. Like they've been called into question. And so I wouldn't repeat those because they, they don't hold up the test of time. Right. Um, sure. Yeah. They did call the and Stanley Milgram. Like he, he inflated his data and grad yeah. students, yeah. you know, like decades later spoke out that, that in, in fact, the, the findings don't quite hold up and the, and the experiment didn't go the way that it was presented. So yeah, like that's the standard. Well, we already knew that because it was psychology. <laughs> but still it'll be in psychology. <laughs> next year so yeah. <laughs> yeah so i mean for me i think that's yeah, the that's, that's right. the standard of whether i i lean on results about whether or not to my knowledge it, they hold up not so much the ethics of of them but but it's actually kind of interesting to me i never thought about the question before well i wouldn't be thinking about it if i wasn't teaching research methods and you know you mm-hmm. have to you have that section on on ethics right and so if we're going to hold our students to a certain standard, right, and walk them through how to how to apply through IRB, you know, should we, mm-hmm. the student, I never thought about my peers' work being ethical or not, as you say, just looking at their findings. And students mm-hmm. like, well, would it be ethical for you mm-hmm. to cite the unethical? So it's kind of meta, but... It probably is unethical. I'd probably do it. And like you've identified a failure in my moral reasoning. <laughs> is it the right choice? Maybe not. But if I'm honest. Okay. I just wanted to give a shout out to my methods of social research class. Thanks for making me think. Yeah. So I want to – I'm going to do – two weeks in a row that um, I'm doing something two weeks in a row, right? So uh, I'm going to go back to the Weinstein thing again, in part because last time we recorded, a lot of the reporting hadn't come out on it yet. So when we recorded last time, only the New York Times story had come out. And since then, we saw the New Yorker story, which interestingly was supposed to be a MSNBC story, but NBC didn't want to touch it. Mm -hmm. So um, this is the story by Ronan Farrow, who is the... um, Stepson of Woody Allen, the son of Mia Farrow, and the illegitimate son of Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. And so he takes this kind of issues personally because he accused Woody mm-hmm. Allen of having molested his sister. 
and then obviously mm. uh, marrying his stepsister or adopted sister. So um, personal set of issues to him. So, I mean, first of all, the, the New Yorker story is so much worse than the New York Times story. The New York Times story uh-huh. is basically about uh, quid pro quo sexual harassment, where F the New Yorker uh, Ronan mm-hmm. Farrow story is about uh, rape. And, uh, and then I was thinking about this and then, you know, since then, there was a story in HuffPo, which was kind of the behind-the-scenes story of Ronan Farrow's article talking about how hard it was for him to publish it, that he'd been working on it for years, and NBC backed off because they were basically afraid of Weinstein suing them. Um, even though they fact-checked it, they were still afraid of Weinstein, and so he ended up having to take it to um, The New Yorker, and then The New Yorker is famous for its fact-checking and its lawyers and whatnot. They're also the ones who uh, published Lawrence Wright's Mm -hmm. story on Scientology, Hmm. um, which is a similarly contentious type situation. But just a few days ago, as of this recording, which is uh, 1018, um, Harvey Weinstein was kicked out of the Motion Picture Academy, which... And then it got me to thinking, and I realized that there's so many ways, and this is almost like Shakespearean, where, first of all, Weinstein's career fundamentally was mm-hmm. built on learning how to game the Oscars. You know, that that was fundamentally what Miramax did, was it, you took movies that nobody would ever heard of, and you campaigned aggressively in ways nobody had ever thought of campaigning for Oscars before, and you got those movies Oscars in order for them to get publicity. And he basically invented the modern conception of Oscar bait and the modern conception of the four-year consideration campaign. And here he is being kicked out of the Academy, um, which is, you know, kind of like this Mm -hmm. uh, fitting end for like a, you know, Greek tragedy type thing. But then I was also thinking about it, and I realized that the uh, another irony of it is that if somebody were to make a movie about how Pharaoh broke this story, <laughs> it would be the most right. Oscar bait movie of all time. <laughs> because, you know, in my uh, 2014 paper with Shilke, we had um, all these plot keywords and we coded them for how Oscar worthy they were, or rather the computer coded them. And we didn't give much emphasis to what the specific ones were, but I'm looking at the list right here, the, specifically the right tail of the list. There's 6,000 mm. of these things, but if I, I'm looking at the top 40, and I'm just going to go through the top 40 and read the ones that have to do either with show business or with um, <laughs> investigative reporting of some kind. Vaudeville. <laughs> Great. Um, behind the scenes. Political right. scandal. TV station. Check. Uh, uh, sexual favor. Check. Evidence tampering. Check. Yep. Um, Check. Let's see here. Ethics. Broadway, mm-hmm. and there was even a specific Broadway thing in one of the allegations. Um, television producer, political oh, okay. repression, Watergate, um, Pulitzer Prize source, and whistleblower. So, I mean, a lot of those keywords you don't see the exact thing, but you know, if they seem to load on the same factor, right? They seem to be generically getting at the idea of investigative reporting, um, sexual scandal, especially involving some type of coercion. And kind of behind the scenes, how the entertainment industry works, all of which are like big Oscar bait. It's not just disabilities, right? Or, um, you know, war crimes. Uh, you also see these things are characteristic of Oscar bait. Basically, another way to think about it is that this is, um, you know, La La Land mm-hmm. meets Spotlight. Well, it's almost it's almost as though the com- what your computer was doing was picking up on all of these uh gossip items about Harvey Weinstein and then just put them yeah, all that's into right. Except uh, it was it algorithm. wasn't coding that, right? It was coding um 
they plot keywords of Oscar-winning films or Oscar-nominated films. And so here you have this guy whose entire career is um, closely identified with the Oscars. And then, you know, it turns out that his downfall, and in particular how Pharaoh very um, diligently got the story to bring him down, is the kind of thing that would make an even better Oscar right. movie than anything Weinstein ever produced. And Weinstein can't vote <laughs> on it because he's kicked out of the Academy now. Well, what's up with Watergate, though? Like, are there that many Watergate movies, or is it just they all go for gold? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, but those So all the presidents, men got a lot of Oscars. I don't remember off the top of my head if there were any other... That's yeah. for our Hollywood episode. We can bracket that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what about but what about the fallout of this, right? Uh I've been wondering more and more, you know, is this just more of the same? You know, it's like Harvey Weinstein goes down, you know, a couple more heads roll and then we forget all about it and mm-hmm. we allow this stuff to go back. I was thinking about this. I I this was a learning experience mm-hmm. for me after that whole hashtag me too thing started yeah. going around and you know, it's one of those things, as a guy, you you know that this stuff happens in the abstract and that it is prevalent. But uh, I was really struck by this Me Too campaign and how much of it I saw around. And I think even though I understood it was a serious problem, I didn't understand mm-hmm. that it was like virtually universal. So I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how much one episode will change yeah. things, but this was definitely... Yeah, well, keep in mind, too, with the hashtag MeToo campaign that, I mean, research shows that women who have been sexually assaulted or harassed are like really not uh, not likely to file reports or to, to be vocal about it, fearing embarrassment or shame or retaliation. So even though this campaign supposedly was quite liberating and a lot of people saw it popping up in their news, feed i mean we can we can also estimate that those those numbers are are much lower than the actual prevalence of women who have been assaulted or harassed yeah yeah totally i'm getting the sense that it's virtually everybody there definitely seems to be kind of a safety in numbers thing you see this Mm -hmm. specifically with weinstein and general then the the broader issue that it's like once Mm -hmm. people say it then um there's like you know the preference falsification or whatever Mm -hmm. is broken and people realize that um there's, a, there's ways to say it. I, I also think it's interesting, like what Joe was saying, is that man can underestimate it. And I see this almost as like a very dark version of the friendship paradox. The friendship paradox is this pretty old model. It goes back like 50 years that says that if you look at the average number, if you, if you were to survey all your friends and ask them how many friends they have, the mean number of friends for all of your friends would be higher than your number of <laughs> friends. So mean number of friends per friend is higher than mean number of friends, you know, and the reason being that gregarious people know a lot of non-gregarious people. And so when you kind of sample Mm. half length two, you're picking up those gregarious people. Um, So I see it almost like that in the sense that, or another way to put it is that um, if most men, most of the time basically are pleasant, um, but there's a certain number of, you know, scumbags who are ubiquitously scumbags, you know, so it seems like Harvey Weinstein was doing this at least once a week for 20 or 30 mm-hmm. years. You know, th- that that kind of almost like power law distribution for scuzziness on uh, the part of men, whether it's, you know, um, sexual harassment or sexual assault or street harassment or anything along those lines um, is going to make it a ubiquitous experience for women or at least a universal experience, even if it's not a daily occurrence. Um, but something that could be, you know, largely off the radar for most men. And so it could be simultaneously true that 
most men will be surprised because they're like, I've never done that. How can it be universal? And most women are like, oh, yeah, that, that happened to me last Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, precisely because, you know, there's such enormous variance in how much basically the guys who do it do it all the time. And that makes it pervasive to women, even if it's rare for, for men to witness or um, commit. Hmm. Well, now I'm wondering, though, is it is it that rare or, you know, because no, I, I don't think it is. I, I, so I think there are two different things. I, I think part of the explanation might be what Gabriel's saying. But I I also think, you know, I, I also think that you need to think about context. And I think there are different places where there are cultures in which I think men don't understand that, you know, that certain kinds of language, uh, you know, certain kinds of behaviors um, are actually not wanted by women. Um, but because they're part of this culture that says, yeah, it's great, um, they'll do it, right? And they might end up only doing it once, right? And then understanding, whoa, I, I totally misunderstood that this isn't something that a woman wants, but then you've already had a woman or a girl affected by your behavior. I, I think behavior. that probably varies depending on what level of behavior you're talking mm-hmm. about. If you're talking about subtle misunderstandings and slights, the kind of thing that is sometimes called microaggressions, then I think most people probably commit it, right? Um, but I think if you're talking you're talking about like the really egregious stuff, then I think you probably do have this like, you know, really uh, high variance distribution for how, you know, you have guys like Harvey Weinstein doing it once or twice a week for 30 years. And then, you know, I, I can personally attest, I've never, you know, demanded that a, uh, uh, you know, a colleague or a student or whatever watch me shower, you know, or, you know, come massage me or whatever, you know. Uh, it's And, you know, it's not like I'm just forgetting that one time I did it, you know. I, I have a question, though. How is it like if you meet a typical person, there, what's the expected probability of them being like predatory? Is it like a coin flip or is it very rare? You want to take that one, Ash? Well, um, I mean, to, to add nuance to it, that we know, of course, the context matters. So there are some some institutions or settings in which predatory male behavior is really rewarded. For instance, fraternities on college campuses um, where there are, is this kind of, you know, mm. deep-seated expectations that women are there as, as sexual prey to be applied with alcohol and all kinds of bravado around sexual conquest bolster a man's masculinity. Mm-hmm. So in that context, you know, a Harvey Weinstein-like kind of behavior might make more sense than in other contexts. But you even still would have much more predatory individuals in that context than others. Exactly. I mean, that's totally, that's the way that I, that I totally see it. It depends on where you are, right? You know, if I'm, you know, if I'm picking my daughter up from preschool, I don't expect it, right? Right. But, um, you know, if I'm, I, I don't know, actually a place where you would think that you shouldn't expect mm. that you do. If I'm on like a crowded mm-hmm. subway or metro train, mm. I totally expect that to happen. I totally expect mm. groping and other kinds of like bad behavior. Jeez. I know, how bad is it in the academy? <laughs> you know, Ashley has experience in two different fields that I would, and I would expect one of them to be high and one of them to be low on this, like either by word of mouth or whatever, are you familiar with there being big differences in this sort of thing in modeling versus 
academia? Uh, yes, for sure. There's um, there's all kinds of heightened opportunities for sexual harassment and assault in fashion because just the, the nature of the way that the interactions happen are in you know, private studios or, or a photographer's apartments, for instance, where casting calls um, can happen. So, and you have like ex- extreme inequities between uh, people of age and power. And so you, you don't quite mm-hmm. have that, those kinds of extreme uh, and private encounters in, uh, in academia. Um, I mean, when you say academia, you mean like among professors or, or between professors yeah. and students? Well, any any respect, like you occasionally hear stories. There was just a story about um, some uh, hard scientist. I forget what type of hard scientist, right. but would it lead like Antarctic expeditions yes. and apparently yeah. harass women on the Actually, it happened at um, my my campus is involved in an investigation where uh, someone in Earth Sciences reportedly was um, sexual harassing sexually harassing graduate students in the field, and like emphasis on it being in the field because that's also like mm-hmm. an, an an extreme kind of encounter where it seems that the rules might be different. There's more intimacy. There's less less of your own space um, when you're sharing like a camp space, for instance. Um, and so there's like a number of abuses that have been reported. And surprisingly, it's taken like a year for the investigation to very slowly proceed. Um, yeah, I mean, in fashion, it was just much more ubiquitous. Like people would talk about yeah. these things. Models would talk about unwanted advances. Uh, men and women models uh, would talk about them just mm-hmm. as a matter of course, you know, like watch out for this photographer. You know, everybody knows about you know, one or two. Well, like I've heard, like even I have heard of like Terry Richardson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as being like kind of right. uh, notorious for like quick pro quo sexual harassment. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that was also part of his art. So he made it like an, an ironic kind of statement that he would be inappropriately gesturing towards you know underage models and he would take photos of it and those photos would be celebrated for their authenticity when in when in fact they're like they're really you know completely horrifying for someone on the other side oh, charming of um yeah uh you know he's been outed he's been shamed but he's still doing his job mm-hmm. he took a brief hiatus and now he's back so mm-hmm. <laughs> um i think that in in academia i would like to say that there are stronger um there are stronger human resources controls, but that's probably only the case since um, Title IX has been kind of bolstered under the Obama administration uh, to make investigations uh, more serious, which um, prior to they weren't. I mean, investigations of cases of abuse of, uh, of undergrad students and grad students. And how much of this do you think is kind of the, um, I don't know, logistical or opportunity side in that, you know, most of academia takes place in offices mm-hmm. and, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, I mean, people do go to conferences, but it, it's routine that everybody gets um, their own room mm-hmm. or maybe grad students share a room, but they share it with peers, not with their advisor. Um, as compared to academia is notionally favor uh, focused on, you know, kind of the mind, whereas modeling and that sort of thing is explicitly focused on uh, corporeal aspects? Uh, no, I think that that's a little romanticizing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. that like predatory sexual behavior happens in all, in all kinds of contexts, irrespective of, you know, what uh-huh. you're really sure. supposed to be doing, whether looking at the mind or the body. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if you, if you listen to accounts of female faculty who who were getting their PhDs like in the 60s and 70s, they, they tell pretty egregious stories of being treated, mm-hmm. you know, as, as playthings or as sex objects. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I mean, not, yeah, not one to name names, but like for, for sure, I think that um, uh, it's, it's the, the fact in fashion is just, yeah, I mean, 
people are just in private spaces more and they're likely to be changing clothes more. And so you might have, you know, a little bit more of like an actual opportunity because of the the physical space allows it. Next, we turn to our guest, Ashley Mears, an associate professor of sociology from Boston University. Ashley is the author of Pricing Beauty, the Making of a Fashion Model from the University of California Press. And she has a new project that I'm sure we'll get the chance to talk about. She also currently serves as chair of the ASA section on consumers and consumption. Thank you very much for joining us, Ashley. Can we start off? So tell us what's news with the ASA section on consumers and consumption? Oh, it's big news. We just reached a threshold of 300 members, which means that we get one extra session yeah. for the ASA meetings in uh-huh. Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like we, we actually have just 300 members. Like we just made it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so a lot of my colleagues are now members of the section and graduate students. Um, and what we'll do with that extra session is um, a special theme on new approaches to inequality and consumption. And so we're, we're hoping that this will, will draw some, some interest for the meetings coming in Philadelphia. Awesome. And, and, and tell us, uh, tell us about Boston University sociology. What's it like? What's its, what's its thing? Oh, um, well, hmm. okay. This is kind of interesting. So, um, it used to be a, a real micro place. They actually had, um, an ethnomethodology center here. Um, people like George Safis were, were really active. And actually when I gave my job talk, uh, eight years ago, the back of the room had blinds over mirrors that actually were two way mirrors because in the adjoining office, this is where they would do their observations, you know, for like huh. interactional studies. Um, we have since walled that up, unfortunately. <laughs> so we no longer have this, uh, the structural legacy. But um, we still have quite a lot of qualitative uh, people. I think that my colleagues are, a lot of us are doing uh, culture theory with a cluster in economic sociology. Um, it's a place where you would you would come if you wanted to study ethnography and culture in the urban um, and markets. And yeah, I think that's kind of what we're known for now. And, and can you tell us about uh, the project you're working on now? Yeah, so I'm finishing a book that's based on ethnography that I conducted in VIP nightclubs. So VIP meaning very important people. Um, And these are nightclubs that offer bottle service. I studied them in New York and the summer colony of the Hamptons, um, Saint-Tropez, and in Miami. So I followed what's kind of colloquially known as this jet-set calendar of economic elites who go to these upscale luxury destinations and go to nightclubs and spend a ton of money. So the bottle prices are like markup of anywhere like 500 to a thousand percent. You could find bottles, like a single bottle for like $5,000 of Cristal champagne. And so the bottles are carried to a person, a patron, or they're called clients. They rent a table for the night in these clubs and the bottles are carried to their table um, with, uh, with fireworks attached to them. So it's a clear case to think about Fablin and conspicuous consumption. Um, and so the book is all about the staging of conspicuous consumption, all of the backstage labor that it takes to pull off ostentation, which you know, from a from a Bordesian point of view, we would think that you know it's kind of it's kind of gross and bad behavior to be too show to be so strategic and showing off with your wealth to try to get status from your wealth, and yet you know th- these clubs and many other kinds of formats ha- offer spaces for uh, people to show showcase their wealth and their money. Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm a huge fan of this project and have been ever since I saw you give a talk on it, like I don't know, three years ago. 
And um, in fact, when Joe and I were doing a practice episode of the podcast, I basically was just talking about your project the whole time, <laughs> uh, which, which I refer to, but I understand if you wouldn't prefer to call it this. I, I call it the douchebag potlatch. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, see it as Thanks. like, so, yeah, <laughs> I would think you to call it, call your book that or something. Although if you want that title, you can have it. Um, but, um, you know, it's yeah. just like such a great uh, illustration of so many things. You have the conspicuous consumption, you know, the mobilization of temporary clients. You have this incredibly complicated way that um, the models are brought to the tables that's, you know, somewhat market-based and somewhat gift-based and mm-hmm. uh, it's just endlessly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, Sorry, go ahead. What, what's well, okay. What, what's the gift aspect of this? Like, I understand the transactional element. I don't even understand what's the practical ends being sought by paying so much for bottle service. <laughs> right. Can you explain this to me. <laughs> right. Like, if you had ten thousand dollars, you probably wouldn't like spend it on a bunch of champagne that you wouldn't even drink because it's too much liquid to realistically consume. Um, but yeah. So on the on the one hand, this this is a pool of people who have a lot of disposable income. They're working in industries like um, finance where money is easy come. And we know from the sociology of money that the way you make your money influences how you spend your money. So it's easy come, easy go. Um, so yeah, the kind of the, the sums are maybe the equivalent of you getting a Starbucks coffee, let's say. Um, so right. for the one, this is like a pool of super rich people. And, and that term has actually been used by economists to describe this, this pool of people who are, um, are earning just so much money at the at the top one percent or point zero one percent even, um, and so the on the other hand, what they're purchasing is this temporary platform to show their money and to to have this VIP luxury experience that actually is incredibly fun and seductive for for everybody who's there, um, not just the clients who are spending, but also. Um, the young women who are mobilized to come into the club to be a part of the audience to bear witness to these huge sums that are spent. Um, and those women are often models or, or they're called just girls. Um, and so when I was doing the field work, I, I went into the field um, as a girl and I was like 32 at the time, but I was just, you know, accepted like 32 year olds are, are girls in the space if they are women. Um, oh. So there's two aspects of the gift. Um, first, uh, Gabriel mentioned the potlatch. So the potlatch is this form of like a magnificent gift that a ruler or, a, you know, tribal chieftain gives out to people in some ritualized event, knowing full well that it can't be, Repaid. So the logic of the gift from Marcel Moss is that if somebody gives you something, you know, it's not free, that it always builds expectations of reciprocity and obligation. And if you can't pay it back, that's a, that's a mark of shame or dishonor. That's like, that's where the, the, that's why charity feels bad to people who, who are on the receiving end. Um, hmm. So yeah, the like gift is mobilized on the one hand because it's, um, sometimes people will buy uh, huge bottles of champagne and they'll, they'll waste it, they'll shake it and spray it, or they'll just gift bottles. You know, it's, it's not uncommon. In Saint Tropez during peak party season, to walk out of the club carrying a two thousand dollar two thousand dollar bottle of Dom Perignon champagne, um, and so that's that's the gift. It gives status to to the giver, and then there's also this whole elaborate economy of gifting that happens between the people who are organizing the nightclub and the girls who they bring into the club. So the girls are there, and they're not getting paid to be there, even though their presence is generating you know this this kind of potlatch dynamics of huge sums of money. But rather, the girls are receiving free access or free drinks and free dinners, um, and so they're also being gifted things. You know, compliments of the house. They're getting comped. Um, 
in addition to these kind of elaborate relationships that get constructed between the club organizers, these are men who are called promoters, and the girls, including friendship. They have all these shared time together. They hang out together. They have sex together. You know, they have like all these intimate relations that, that help mobilize the girls to come to a club and work for free. So yeah, multiple layers there. Yeah. So in these spaces, you also have the bottle girls who are being, who are being paid, right? Right. And so, you know, how, how, how are they different from the bottle girls who are just there to you know, sort of hang out and be comped. Right. Yeah. So you have lots of the um, lots of different types of women in in the space. Um, the the bottle girls are kind of. I think maybe people are familiar with them from the famous case of Rachel Uchitel, uh, who was a bottle girl from Vegas and then in New York, and she was she was um, uh, waiting on Tiger Woods. So when the Tiger Woods story mm. broke, uh, Rachel Uchitel was in the news, and people were interested in this job. And so um, the bottle girls often they they're hired by the club to be cocktail waitresses, but they're job is actually more complicated. They're, um, they also get retained by the club um, if they are also bringing in clients. So part of a bottle girl's job is like that of a promoter um, of bringing in the right kind of clientele that the club wants. So they're also expected to form relations with, with clients and to mobilize the, the big spenders to come out to a club as well. Um, there's a big symbolic difference between bottle girls and um, the girls at a promoter's table. Um, the girls at the promoter's table, I mean, these are often called the image the image tables. They have a certain kind of image of fashion models. So they're very tall, they're very thin. They have the air of exclusivity and high status that fashion connotes. The bottle girls tend to be more curvaceous, more, um, more like heteronormatively sexually available. Um, they wear, their uniforms are often low cut, you know, revealing kinds of dresses. They're in a sense marked more as the sex whereas the girls at the promoter table are marked as the beauty and there's a kind of classic distinction between the sex and the beauty um, when we talk about the, the value of women um, there's a third category of women that are in the space and these are called table girls so some of the clubs will hire girls who might be out of work fashion models or or you know some some kind of girl in between a bottle girl and a in between looking like a bottle girl and a model uh, and the table girls will be just standing at the bar and they're paid like a hundred dollars a night by the club but then they'll go and sit with a client if the if a client wants you know women company and, and you know doesn't have his own models will get a table girl um, and the table girls are also kind of discursively marked as being more sexually available they're talked about as sluts or you know doing a dirty job the bottle girls are also seen as doing a dirty job so i think that there's something really important about the money the fact that some some women in this space are clearly monetizing their sexual capital or beauty capital in the club and they're on the on a kind of lower end um, side of a boundary that distinguishes the model who is also there you know lending her sexual capital or beauty capital into the club but she doesn't get paid and not, like not getting paid makes her higher status. Yeah, and what's interesting to me about that is that these are the models will get paid in other contexts, right? I mean, their mm-hmm. job is to be models, so their job is to you know be somewhere, be pretty, and be seen being pretty. Mm-hmm. You know, very you know usually with the picture being taken, but still fundamentally it's about being someone and being pretty. And they get paid cash, right? If you do a catalog, if somebody does a catalog uh, shoot or an editorial shoot or whatever, they'll get paid cash for that. Um, but if somebody, um, but these same people would not necessarily get paid for appearing at a table. Instead, they get paid in the form of they have this patron-client relationship with the promoter who takes them and all their friends miniature golfing or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not that they don't you know get paid for being pretty ever. It's just right. in this specific context, they are there because they have a gift relationship, and uh, that changes the value. And and ironically, they're worth giving the gifts to because they get paid for being pretty in another context. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. And they have the the status of having been chosen by the fashion industry for being pretty enough. You know, unlike the bottle girl, for instance. What, what do they think they networking or like? I, I'm I'm having trouble getting my head around the <laughs> right. motivations here. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so first, you know, to similar to your earlier question about why would somebody spend money like this in a club? Like, it is really, really fun if you could put yourself in the mindset of an eighteen-year-old um, to have access to nightclubs and you know, can in Miami and uh, and New York, all for free. Uh, you know, drinking the best champagne amid the most celebrated kind of places in the city, and then to be able to relay it on social media to um. say that you were there, um, and you know, you got into this exclusive space, which by definition means everybody else got excluded. So you're of high value enough. Um, I think that's incredibly seductive in its own right for, for the girls, um, who are there. Uh, some of them are strategically oriented. They, they talked, uh, in interviews. Some of them think that they can meet people who will be useful for their careers. They have aspirations in fashion. Some of them have aspirations in even finance. I mean, it's a big range of, um, range of, uh, uh, girls and, and what they're hoping to, to do in the future. But most of them are pretty aware that they are, they are just here for the fun of the night. Well, what I, what I find really interesting is that I kind of feel like you're looking at it from like, from the very top, from the elite. But if I think about club culture, I actually see that as as trickling down throughout. And in many ways, so much of what makes uh, what what makes club owners and the club industry be able to make money is this okay, this gifting of access to young to young women, right, mm-hmm. to come into the club, right. Sometimes because they're like, you're going to dance, and we need entertainment. Um, or you're going to dance and you're also really pretty. And Mm -hmm. the men are the ones who are going to be spending most of the money anyway. Mm -hmm. And so we let you in for free and we don't card you even. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but we'll card all of the men, right? And they will come in and you will be part of our money making machine. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the logic of ladies' night (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are we learning though about sort of, gender relations or power like what when when after going through this what what did what do we learn okay well for me i think it's a case of uh, contemporary traffic in women and i mean traffic in the the old anthropological sense of the word where um women are used as um, conduits of exchange to build relationships between men. Um, and so someone like uh, Gail Rubin, she's you know, thinking about how women historically have been passed through, say, tribal systems in order to build alliances uh, between different tribal leaders. And so women don't accrue any of the benefits. They just they enable a lot of the benefits through their own circulation that men control. And those benefits go to men. And so, um, yeah, this is like on the one hand, it's a very old kind of concept. 
attempt to explain gender inequality. But on the other hand, like when you start thinking about it, like the, the, this kind of system of traffic in women, it starts to make it starts to explain the VIP party scene um, because it's it's women who are brought in uh, to a place. They get very few benefits and men are, are reaping all of these benefits. It's like men who are controlling the club industry. It's almost entirely men who are promoters. Um, wealthy clients meet and entertain and do business with one another through these channels. Um, in part, they forge bonds through flirt, flirting with um, young women. And women are kind of largely cut out of this whole system of profit that they're enabling. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's an example of a contemporary system of traffic in women. I think that it has similar dynamics that you could look at um, with, for instance, the fraternity scene, which I, I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, you know, I, I see it on my own campus and um, uh, throughout Greek colleges, like the best fraternity house has the best parties defined by who has the best looking girls on campus, you know, and like those those benefits don't go to the girls who are actually put in, in positions of risk and danger uh, to be applied with alcohol at fraternity parties. So, I mean, it's um, it's a way of thinking structurally about this, this reproduction of systems of inequality. Um, I think that it also, at least from the kind of subjective point of view of the girls, it helps me think about why women consent to systems of their own exploitation. Um, And I think that we've been wrong in thinking that exploitation and empowerment are at completely opposite theoretical ends. Hmm. I actually think that there is something incredibly empowering and seductive in the moment for for a girl who is in this position of of exploiting herself at a nightclub that being being a sexual object and being the object of a gaze is itself a reward um i mean i found this with my first book in pricing beauty too but i didn't go in this direction as much but i've been trying to think about this like yeah there's um the seductions of exploitation so I have a question. So I, I know I, I mean, I've seen women come in and get, you know, and get these tables and, and do they not request the same kind of bottle service? So How are it, women different? Right. Yeah. So at the, at the places that I was studying, it was almost always men, which is really surprising because we know that they're also very rich women. I mean, not, a, yeah. not as, not as many and not, a, not on as big a scale. Um, but they were seen as enough. So occasionally it happens that women will be clients and they'll, and they'll come in and they'll buy bottles. And they're always talked about as anomalies, as being, you know, these kind of weird cases of like weird women. Mm. Um, because the whole space is this very like heteronormative space that's geared towards uh, like a heterosexual male gaze and heterosexual male ways of interacting with women. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, I published a paper a while ago um, or like a, a little op-ed um, and I got a couple of emails of women who who were like, what about us? Because we also party. Um, but they weren't going into the exact same spaces, but they ha- they also had a circuit of, of nightclubs where they went to show off and they were like, you know, high end, successful professional women. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I my sense is that it's just a different niche of, of nightclubbing in, in which there's lots of different niches of clubs that cater to all kinds of different tastes. And the reason I was drawn to this one is I was, I was interested in these dynamics of um, conspicuous consumption among the, among the very top of the economic elite. Does it really get them anything? Like, are you going to get a Goldman Sachs presidency <laughs> by uh, vice presidency? By... No. <laughs> so, and then, then the question is, is, so who's really like, where's the exploitation going? I mean, if you're, 
<laughs> I, I, it seems like the promoter is just exploiting everybody with the what seems to me maybe I'm well I, I know I'm certainly naive on this whole scene, but it seems like just a bunch of empty transactions that uh, the 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 proprietor the business proprietor is ultimately enjoying the fruits of. Uh, yes, so that, I think that that's right. Like the the fruits of all of this go ultimately to the the owners. Um, many of whom are themselves former promoters. So there's a, there's a kind of career ladder uh, for promoters to, to open their own nightclubs. Um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, like you don't get a, you might get some, some benefits at Goldman, certainly not like JP Morgan, <laughs> for instance, you know, like different banks have different profiles. Um, uh, but yeah, in, indeed for people in different sectors, you know, in some sectors of finance, I think like oil and commodities and private equity, I think that they, these are spaces in which certain types of men can bond, not all types of men for sure. Um, but, um, but I think ultimately the, the club industry just is really good at creating profits for, for their owners. Did you say that it was, uh, it was also kind of a life course thing for men that like, Rich guys in their 20s or early 30s might do this, but for the most part, they age out. Right. Yeah. So um, it would be it would it wouldn't be unheard of to see like a 60 year old man, you know, buying bottles. But uh, but yeah, it's it's less it's less common than you would see among like um, men who have a lot of money in their 20s and 30s. Um, yeah. They, I mean, at, at a certain point, you know, one's one's home life stabilizes um, or, you know, one's career becomes both very demanding, but also, you know, higher stakes. And so you can't you can't squander money and public in the same way that you would when you were right. younger. Um, it's the wrong image. You can see this also with um, the the Tumblr website, Rich Kids of Instagram, RKOI. Um, I mean, it's like rich kids. If you if you take a look at it, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting website that curates the Instagram pictures of young young economic elites who are engaged in wasteful behavior. I mean, things that are really common to what I would find in the nightclubs, like, um, you know, spraying champagne at each other, having really huge bottles of champagne that you can't even carry, pouring champagne in the bathtub, giving it to your dog. There's like lots of creative ways of wasting champagne. Like the, the most cliched one is the champagne bath. You know, that that's like, that's overdone. But there, I mean, it's called rich kids of Instagram for a reason. I mean, these are mostly young, young people who are, um, who don't have the high stakes um, just yet for their for their own reputations or for their you know businesses' reputations, um, and so they're they're engaged in these kinds of rituals of waste. Yeah, I just I just looked it up and I see uh, somebody getting on a private jet and then uh, a young woman in her early twenties trying to chug a ten liter bottle of champagne. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's sounds, funny. it sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the behavior that that you describe to me is really, you know, aside from it, you know, being, you know, sort of like this corollary to the potlatch, um, kind of seems to me more like sort of braggadocio that comes with being young and having too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been working on a, a theory paper about the irony of conspicuous consumption, about like this kind of behavior is act, like um, ostentation as ironic, which mm-hmm. I mean, Veblen himself was making this kind of scathing ironic critique of the mm-hmm. economic elite in the early 1900s. But he was actually being kind of serious, you know, in, in his like hostile critique of the rich. Oh, for sure. But he yeah. Never, yeah. He never really 
took into into um, the possible the possibility that the rich themselves were being ironic in the way that they were wasting. Uh, I mean, for him, they're being very strategic and they're wanting status, and that's why they're having this like one-upmanship in, in what they spend and how they show it. But um, certainly in the nightclub um, and in sites like Rich Kids of Instagram, I think a lot of it is this sort of ironic performance where. Um, people know that this looks bad. People know that there's a critique of wasteful behavior, and yet they engage in this anyway. And they appropriate that critique sometimes, even in the way, um, for instance, some of the bottle buyers would say, like, I know this looks gross and they're starving children in Africa, but I'm going to do it anyway. And they would proceed to then take pictures of, you know, their hundreds of bottles of champagne. Yeah, well, I mean, it's almost as though, uh, but is it, uh, is it them being ironic or is it them being like, actually, I'm above your or, critique? Or like a humble brag, right? Where you're like, I want to show up, <laughs> yeah. but I don't want you to think I'm showing up. <laughs> right. No, I, yeah, well, so the, the way that I conceive of irony here is is in these terms of uh, when when somebody knows that this is bad behavior and they, they go for it anyway, which creates this like next layer of domination, right? It's like someone who is who is savvy enough to know highbrow from lowbrow or to understand these distinctions and who crosses those boundaries anyway and plays with the fact that they know that they cross those boundaries. And now, a word from Editor Bain. We both know that I have to desk reject you. You'll just have to imagine the reviewer comments. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Ashley Mears from Boston University. Ashley is the author of Pricing Beauty, The Making of a Fashion Model from the University of California Press. Is there anyone you'd like us to have on the show thinking about being on the show yourself? Or are you a non-sociologist who would like to ask a sociology question? If so, we're on the web, theannexpodcast.com on Twitter at Socianex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. You can listen to us on Google Play and iTunes. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.